This is a meditation session as well. So we can all sit uh, wherever we are in our meditation posture. I'll give a few reflections uh, on the Buddha's awakening. We already had Ajahn Dhammasiya talk earlier on the birth of the Bodhisattva or Buddha-to-be. So the two other things that we celebrate or that we think back to, reflect on, on Visaka Puja on this special occasion is also the Buddha's awakening and also the Buddha's passing away into final Parinibbana. So I've been given the task of uh, talking about the the awakening, so the Buddha's actual attainment of what we call enlightenment or awakening. So the best way to absorb Dharma, the best way to take it in, is actually to meditate at the same time. You're not paying attention or letting the mind be dragged out, pulled out to external distractions, which might be easier if we're at home, not in the presence of our fellow practitioners, as we usually would be. So we can skip up, get up to do something, look around the room, get distracted. Probably be even easier for that to happen if we're not at the monastery here in person. So good to assume a meditation posture, close our eyes. Maybe let our awareness rest with our breathing as we take in the Dhamma talk. So this is completely central to the Buddhasasana. This uh, acknowledgement, this understanding that to the right path of practice, a human mind can be liberated from all pain, stress and suffering. And this is basically, essentially what the Buddha claimed to have achieved. This word bodhi means awakening, or the first initial translation was enlightenment. But perhaps awakening is a better one. It's the Buddha awakening, awakening from the sleep of delusion. And all the suffering, all the confusion, all the disappointment, all the tears shed that comes with that delusion. It's all offloaded and abandoned, relinquished from a heart, and so the heart was freed. This is uh, this event taking place 2,560-odd years ago. And this is a very uh, special part of Wisaka, where people 
from various traditions in the world, if there's someone to commemorate, it's a birth or it's a death. But when we think back to the founder of our tradition, our spiritual mentor, it's the awakening, which is really the special thing, the landmark which makes his life and his teachings and his message unique. So he wasn't just someone who was born, just someone who born, lived through their life and then died. This monumental event happened where he attained enlightenment. And there's much that could be said about that. It's all different aspects and reflections that we could talk about. But what is Buddha? What defines a Buddha? What are the qualities of the Buddha? What sort of qualities did he need to cultivate and bring up to actually come to that experience, to that spiritual awakening? There was one Dhamma talk where Lumpo Man, so kind of like, I guess you might call like the godfather or the grandfather of our tradition, he gave one talk to a layman once. It was recorded in a book. I don't think it was ever put into English. He talked about these three qualities that make up what you could say a Buddha in perhaps the more abstract sense. So there was the historical figure who was born, Siddhartha Gautama, in ancient India. And he had a family and a life of so many years. He was a person, but we talk about Buddha, perhaps the essential Buddha in an abstract sense. What is it? It's wisdom, a discerning mind which recognizes things as they are. It's compassion, karuna, the Pali word the sense of sympathy, compassion, a big-heartedness to support, help, alleviate and relieve other living beings from their pain and their suffering once he has the wisdom to do that. These two qualities of both understanding, understanding the causes of suffering and how to abandon it, also understanding that there are other beings in the same plight. But in that, in that task of attaining, awakening for himself and also pointing other people to that same experience, guiding them, mentoring them, he does it in a way which is pure, so which is the third quality of a Buddha, Parisudi. So he wouldn't be doing it for the sake of gain, for money, for wealth, for fame, fortune, popularity, getting himself on the map, he does it purely out of compassion because it's the right thing to do. It's just the nature of a Buddha has these three qualities. Very wise, deep understanding, refined understanding of the mind and of the world. Great compassion, ocean-like compassion, big-heartedness. And this purity of intention, 
purity of conduct and ultimately purity of mind yeah, on the high in the highest sense no greed no hatred no delusion working away under the surface these three qualities I think would resonate with any human being not just a Buddhist anyone who appreciates someone who's intelligent someone who's insightful understanding but uses that to help to support in a compassionate way and does it in a very pure way has a very pure mind and a very pure intention. I think these qualities are so universal that they would simply resonate with anyone who themselves has the ability to appreciate the value of those qualities. And we can see the, the various events, the episodes in the Buddha's life story that led up to his awakening. The focus of our the major theme today and some of the events that happened just after we can see these qualities coming out they're illustrative these stories and we can relate in that sense that the buddha was someone who lived he was a person a human being as he said he grew up in the world but transcended the world so we can relate to him on that human level and that personal level but we can also tap into this deeper sense of what actually essentially is a Buddha. And so we don't have to rely on scholars or archaeology to try and get back and figure out if there actually was a Buddha or if he actually was the way that he's come down to us through the scriptures. Because he said, someone who sees the Dhamma, his teaching, his path, that person sees me. Those who see the Dhamma see the Buddha. Seeing the Buddha, one sees the Dhamma. But it's nice to think back to his story, the personal experiences, the episodes in the biography. And we can relate to him as a fellow human being that grew up in a society of other human beings in the same way we have. And he was on a search, like we are, So without going too far back into his story, after he left his parents, he was in the forest, sometimes with other practitioners, later on by himself. At this stage he wasn't a Buddha yet, he was a Bodhisattva. He was still meditating, trying to find a way to completely release his mind um, to experience is deathless happiness, this state of supreme peace, what we call Nirvana or Nibbana in Pali. He was still in that pursuit and he hadn't achieved it yet. He was trying all sorts of methods to get there to this process of trial and error, testing himself, testing different meditation methods. He was still what's called a Bodhisattva at this point, so a being who's sowing the seeds of awakening aspiring to awakening but still hasn't achieved awakening yet when he was practicing as a bodhisattva you can see some of the mind states he experienced 
even not that long before he attained enlightenment. He didn't suppress them or try and pretend that they weren't there. Things like fear, things like even panic. He got scared in the course of his meditation training. He said sometimes he panicked just as if someone was walking down a road and thugs, criminals jumped out or someone is being stalked by criminals. It's the same way you panic. He also experienced panic. When he gave in to these feelings, which we can all relate to, sometimes doubt, sometimes laziness, sloth, he realized that his concentration would fall away. So his meditation, in which he'd gained a certain degree of success in samadhi, instilling the mind, getting the mind into states of unification, peace, happiness, that would disintegrate and fall away. Sometimes because of doubt was blocking him. Sometimes because of fear, even panic. Sometimes a sense of malaise, he said, would come up. This feeling that we can have sometimes ourselves, maybe just feeling off, feeling discontent with life, maybe feeling a bit confused, almost a bit ill, unbalanced inside. The Bodhisattva said he also experienced this malaise and he realized this particular mind state this is making my peace of mind fall away. And so he abandoned it. Whenever his meditation took a dip, he'd say, why? And try and pretend it wasn't there. Sort of sweep it under the rug or try and suppress it. He'd look at his mind honestly, see what was going on. And abandon and let go of any states that were stopping him from progressing in his practice. So this took wisdom as well, being observant about the mind, looking at it, when he did, what kind of practice, what type of result came. When he let certain mind states take over, were they helpful, were they wholesome, were they feeding into the peace or were they taking away from it? He's making these honest observations and not stopping doing this for many years before he could come to a completely secure happiness which was free from all suffering. This is what inspired me when I first was introduced to the Buddha Dhamma when I was 16, 17. I went to a workshop that was near my house. I was living in Victoria and Woodend. There was a Buddhist workshop going on around the corner in the main town near my house. And I'll never forget this initial impression I got when the teacher told us all that there was this young man who went out into the forest, left home with this aspiration for enlightenment, awakening, and he just sat down and observed his own mind. Remember that really made an impression on my mind. After the session was over, sitting in the car, going back to my house, and just that image of someone who has the courage to face themselves, to sit down and observe their own mind and work with it and ask questions about it and develop it 
somebody has the introspection, the interest, and the courage to do that, to walk away from the usual cycle of day-to-day tasks, confusion, the things that occupy people's attention. Someone cared enough about a higher spiritual state to actually take that seriously enough to go off and observe their own mind and to work with it. And this is what he did. Now at one point, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, while he was still practicing, he had five prophetic dreams you can read about in the Pali Canon. Dreams that were letting him know of what was to come in the future. They were very auspicious dreams. The first one was that he dreamt he had this huge body he was lying down in the Himalayas. It was like his pillow. His feet stretched out into the southern sea. His body was like as big as mountains in his dream. And the meaning of this was that uh, it was in a sign, it was an intimation that he would indeed uh, fulfill his aspiration and attain Buddhahood. He'd attain full awakening. Why it manifests that particular image, we don't know, don't really need to know, but this is how the story goes. Second one was that there was this huge woody vine sort of growing up from his stomach, going up into the skies. This dream, you know, this image that arose in his dream was letting him know that his teaching would extend far, as far as there is human beings, and as far as there even is celestial beings. You can see the image there. It's this big stalk sort of thing stretching right up into the heavens, into the sky. The meaning of that was that his teaching would extend as far as there are humans and even devas. So it's kind of the far-reaching effect of his message, what would happen in the future. We can see even now, even the Western world is having the Dharma come into it, extend into it, even if it's taken a long time. Consistent with the prophecy, this was one dream. Was that another dream? Well, these kind of grubs were kind of crawling up his legs. It sounds a bit strange, but he's... Uh, Legs were covered with these kind of worms or these grubs, white and black, and had made that all the way up to his knees. And he said that the meaning of this was that there would be many upasakas and upasikas, so laymen, laywomen, that would come to him for teachings and guidance, that would come to him as a refuge. The next dream was that all these different colored birds, specifically four different types of birds, were flocking to him, you know, flocking to his feet, falling at his feet with all these variegated colors, but they would change as they hit his feet, they turn white. To so these four different types of birds, they were symbolic 
of different individuals, different people coming from different castes of society. So ancient Indian society, you had these, you know, this kind of stratified system of Brahmins, nobles and warriors, and laborers, workers, merchants, and then slaves. But once they came to him, they all turned white. So obviously they became uh, monks, nuns. This was the meaning that people from all different parts of society would come to him and ordain and become summoners, become renunciates, contemplatives under his guidance. And the last dream, the fifth one, in some ways is actually my favorite, although it's not as pretty as the other ones. He's walking back and forth on a huge mountain of excrement, <laughs> but he's not being soiled by the excrement. So why is he walking back on this huge mountain of excrement? The excrement was symbolic of all the gains, say the offerings, all the attention that would be lavished on him, all the praise, uh, all those things that people wish for, they would come to him, but he wouldn't be bogged down in them. His mind would be detached from them, not swayed by them. Again, this is a sign of the Buddha's purity. You could be very well supported by all the people who appreciated who he was, but he got this sign, even as a bodhisattva, that he wouldn't be walking on that pile of excrement and just sinking down into it. He was above it and beyond it. So these dreams, they were interpreted in this way later on. They came up as a sign, some kind of encouragement, sign of what's to come. And he kept practicing, he kept meditating. Eventually, he ended up near this Niranjara River. You see a few different references to the Niranjara River. And he has this battle with Mara. So some of us have seen this depicted in Buddhist imagery or in the movie. There was a movie where this epic battle on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment shown as these kind of hordes or these commando force of this being Mara, trying to throw the Buddha off. He's getting very close to enlightenment. But there's this tempter, sometimes it's called end maker, this personification of really what is the distractions in our own mind, or the obstacles in our own mind. So it's a personification, kind of like an allegorical figure, Mara. But Mara really is kind of all can be any sorts of thing that all sorts of things that can come up within our own mind, something on the external level, pulling us off the path, dissuading us, convincing us it's not worth it or that it won't work, tempting us, basically making us die away from the path to awakening. So this is where Mara really tries to throw the Buddha off you. But this is where we see the Buddha's warrior spirit come up you. The Buddha says some very interesting things, and we're not just seeing the Buddha's wisdom here. You see how the Buddha 
he was what you call, you could say it wouldn't be wrong, a hero of types. And sometimes we have to be like that. If we're getting scared or we're getting bored or we think our practice isn't working, we have to summon up this warrior spirit. The Buddha actually asks Mara when Mara is kind of trying to convince him to stop, give up his efforts. The Buddha says to Mara, do I look like I'm holding munja grass? So it's lucky that someone figured out what that means. In ancient India, if someone went into battle and they carried munja grass with them, that was their equivalent of a white flag. It's a sign that you're going to surrender. The Buddha asks Mara, basically, do I look like I'm about to give up? Do I look like I'm about to surrender? He's not carrying a white flag. He said, I'd prefer to die in this battle than live on defeated. The Buddha's not going to be scared and intimidated. Whether it's this being, Devabhuti Mara, the actual being itself, or just the internal Mara, the Kilesa Mara. He's not going to kowtow. He's not going to be convinced. He's not going to give up. We need that sometimes. You know, we're in practice. We can relate to that. Maybe sometimes we really get down and depressed. It's like there's these internal voices whispering things, and they're not encouraging things. We're upset with ourselves, disappointed with ourselves, think that there's no hope. Think, why go on? Why not just give up right here? What's the point? All these kinds of thoughts. Sometimes you just got to stand up and fight. You got to get rid of those voices. You have to challenge them. Even if establishing mindfulness, doing meditation at that point feels very painful. You have to just be willing to take a few punches and get into the battle and fight. Locate this kind of inner hero that just won't give up. You prefer to experience a bit of pain along the way than give up the fight altogether. Sometimes you just have to stomp your foot down and tell Mara, I'm not going to be intimidated by you. The Buddha would say this sometimes. He wouldn't be so warrior-like. He'd just say, I know you, Mara. He knows Mara. He's seeing through him. He knows his tricks. This is the Buddha's persistent effort. He has this warrior inside him. And sometimes we need to get in contact with that, tune into that, rather than just getting down in the dumps, getting sleepy and going to bed early, hiding under the covers, you're feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not the warrior spirit. And the spiritual path was never going to be a cakewalk. It's never going to be easy. You notice that the Kruparajans in Thailand, yeah, they can really good at bringing this up. They'll just say things like, don't expect it to be easy. Be willing to take a few punches. Get used to it. It's normal. Sometimes pain comes up on the path. It's totally normal. Maybe sometimes you feel like you're engaged in an epic battle. And so you have to battle. You have to keep going. You have to fight. And the Buddha also had this in him. He's called the quality of wiriya, energy or tenacity, and kanti, patient endurance. So he's not going to be dissuaded, not by an internal or an external obstacle. 
the various forces of Mara, the Buddha says that he knows them. What are these? Cowardice, yeah, fear. Yeah. Not going to be dissuaded by that one, even if it's coming up. Yeah. Doubt. What did Ajahn Chah say about doubt? Yeah. Ajahn Chah said that you'll get doubts, but they can't stop you from practicing. Yeah. Doubt. If there's doubt, then there's doubt. They can't stop you from practicing. You just keep meditating. Keep going. Laziness, loss and torpor, sensual desire, fame, wrongly gotten. These are the things that Mara loves to heap on people, you know, to stop them, pull them off the path, put an end to their path. That's why sometimes we call him the end maker. And don't let him put an end to your spiritual journey. You have to be strong sometimes. And this is what the Bodhisattva had to be. He had to be strong sometimes. Sometimes it's easy to practice mindfulness. Sometimes it takes a heroic effort. Can't always practice like that. But sometimes you need to summon that quality up. Weary up. And so the Buddha goes on. Yeah. Or the Bodhisattva goes on. Yeah. Keeps practicing. Yeah. Keeps contemplating. And one night, practicing all night, he finally does it. Knowledge has come up. He wins that fight. He conquers Mara. You could say conquers all the worldly dhammas yeah, right there in his own heart. Frees himself. Goes from being Bodhisattva to Buddha to awakened one. Knowledges, understanding of many different kinds arise and put an end to the causes of suffering in his own mind and he's liberated, he's done his work and hopefully we can have conviction in this. We haven't reached it ourselves but this is why we need to target our bodhisattva, this means faith or conviction. in the awakening of the Tathagata, of the, of the Buddha. He sees, he sees that, that he wasn't living a one-life existence. There's such thing as previous lives. This is one knowledge that comes up for him as he sits up meditating all night. This is not an idea that he picked up just from Indian culture because people already believed in reincarnation. There was other traditions. There was actually many people at the time who didn't believe in reincarnation. This is something he said that he saw, not something that he learned from someone else. So it was actually a product of his meditative skill, his divine eye, actually. He saw that karma, actions, bring results. And those ex results come through the course of one life, but even over many lives. Skillful leading to more pleasant, more happy results. Unskillful leading to painful results. Very deep and complex system, but... Saying again that he said he could see beings arising and passing away, different modes of birth and becoming according to their karma, according to their actions. And the knowledge that his mind would be completely purified from asawas, these outflows, these kinds of toxins or even like sewage, 
effluence, the defilements of the mind being completely relinquished, cut off forever. But it was very refined, the type of insight that led to this, not something that's easy to understand for anyone, especially if we don't meditate that much. If we read about the Dhamma, but the actual thing that he saw, the cause and effect process, the dynamics of the mind which generate suffering is nothing simple. It's very deep. What some of you may have heard of, the Paticca Samuppada, it's a dependent co-arising. goes very deep down into the mind, the initial ignorance, misunderstanding, our, our thoughts, our expectations, our plans, they're affected by this from the word go. Avijja, Pachaya, Sankara, so this ignorance, this fundamental misunderstanding of things has a part in forming our thoughts, our ideas, ripples out into the sensory world. It's misunderstanding out into the sensory world so where we see forms, things that come through our visual field that we see for a while and they pass on. Things that we hear, so the experiences we have with our physical senses. We crave those things, like those things, get attached to those things. Never really quite see that they're not providing us with the happiness that we thought they could provide we keep going back to them again and again through the power of craving and attachment, keep getting disappointed, keeps leading to suffering again and again. Because a bit of pleasure is better than nothing. And the cycle continues, leans on, just the more states are becoming, more states of wanting to be something, someone in a certain scene. This carries on from life to life, to life, and the mind is kind of caught in that tangle, that process. But it comes from deep down, this misunderstanding, this kind of expectation that maybe food, other people, the opposite sex, entertainment is going to provide us with true happiness. And again and again and again, it doesn't. Where does that expectation come from? Where does it ripple out from? Where does it bubble up from? This is avicca, pachaya, sankara. It's not understanding. These things are impermanent. We can't ever fully control them. So through cutting through this process, breaking it down, understanding it, and going beyond it, this is how the Buddha attains awakening. The whole cause and effect sequence ceases and his mind is liberated from it so he's got that experience but how's he supposed to pass it on to everybody else and he said that this is very deep gambirang is the Pali word it's deep or profound panitang subtle refined goes against the grain against the stream of the world so the newly awakened Buddha is sitting there 
thinking to himself, is anyone actually going to understand this? Paraphrasing, this isn't exactly how it's said in the Sutta, but it's the basic meaning. This is all these things, it's deep, it's profound, this experience of awakening, what led up to it. I had to try so hard, do so much to get here. How are other people possibly going to understand it? People who have lots of defilements. So he decides, at least in that moment, he's not going to teach. He's going to live out his life because he sees probably it's a bit of a hopeless situation. But happily, there was another special being tuning in at that point to what just crossed his mind. Many of you will know this story. All around the world, when lay people request a Dhamma talk from monks, they recite this verse. This Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, is aware of what the newly awakened Buddha is thinking. And of course, he freaks out. You know, this, this can't be happening. He's just attained awakening. He's not going to share the information with anyone else. The Brahma appears. It encourages the Buddha to teach, to spread the Dhamma. He says there will be some people that understand. There are people with little dust in their eyes. So in other words, there are people that have enough intelligence, have enough goodness in them to recognize your teaching so help them because they're perishing they're suffering people are falling away without the dharma this is brahma this celestial being invites the buddha to teach and then the buddha has what you could call a second look and he has a change of heart so some people find this a little bit strange. Why is it that the Buddha would be reliant on this uh, this Brahma to induce him or encourage him to actually teach the Dharma? The first line of thought that came up with the Buddha, remember, it was a line of thought. He was just thinking to himself, this probably is not going to work. This might just be a pointless headache. What happened after that was that he actually looked. He surveys the world this time with the eye of a Buddha. He looks at living beings. And so he sees something they didn't see before. sees that some of them actually have enough capacity. They have enough mindfulness. Some don't. He compared them to different types of lotuses, extending beyond water, in the water, at various different levels in their development. He saw that living beings are like that. It's not that it's a hopeless situation. And so there's this change of heart, you could say. He changes his mind. He says those with... Ears, let them show their faith. So in other words, those who peop- those people who are willing to listen to a, that whatever it is that he has to say, his teachings, the Dhamma, those who are willing to put a bit of trust in him, he'll teach for their sake. And he opens, as we say, the doors to the deathless. In other words, he's going to give them the opportunity now. 
this is a kind of opening of the heart. You think about it, and if we don't want to get involved with someone or some group of people, kind of like there's a closing off there. But with this arising of understanding, together with the Buddha's own compassion, his goodwill, there's this kind of opening of the doors to the deathless. You could also say he's opening up his heart. He's going to give everyone a chance in line with the Brahmin's suggestion. Again, like Mara, we might think, okay, maybe this Brahma is this kind of, it's just an analogy for the Buddha's own Brahma Viharas, his own goodwill, his own compassion. It's not depicted that way in the story. It probably took both of them. Maybe it was a bit of a, uh, a joint experience. The Buddha had the requisite compassion, yeah, but it needed a bit of a nudge in the right direction. So the Brahma comes down, invites the Buddha. The Buddha takes that invitation, those words seriously. He decides now he's going to teach. He's going to spread the Dhamma. And he's been spreading moving through the lands, through India, through Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, China, now moving into the West. It's nice that we still have that tradition, that we remember back to the value of an invitation. Monks, they generally won't teach unless there's an invitation. This was the big, important, significant invitation the Buddha responded to compassionately. And so the awakening was complete. Now after the awakening, he has experience where he's going to start going around, giving people a chance to hear the teaching, to hear the Dhamma as a Buddha. So the awakened one now becomes an awakener, someone who's going to help other people point the way so they can reach the same attainment that he can. And this is how we remember him. He attained awakening, so he became an awakened one. But he was also an awakener, a teacher, and we can have much gratitude for that. If it wasn't for him and his struggles and all the good qualities that he had to master, all the bad qualities that he had to abandon and everything that that took, uh, we wouldn't have this amazing, wonderful, beautiful tradition still with us. And so we remember the Buddha. This is how he wanted us to remember him. You can see in his story shortly after, The Brahmin walking along a road and he sees his footprints in the dust have these interesting wheel marks on the heel. The Buddha had these special marks on his feet. So he gets very intrigued and follows his footprints, traces them up to a tree and he finds the Buddha sitting there under the tree. Asks him, what exactly are you? Very impressed with the Buddha's appearance, very bright, very confident. Are you an angel? He says, no. Are you a spirit? No. Ask him, where are you a human being? He 
still answers no. The Buddha says that those effluents, those defilements by which I would be any of those things, those underlying tendencies in the mind, the ignorance, the states of becoming, the desire for becoming, the views, all those things that would bring someone into being identified with one of those states. He's just let go of them all. He's transcended them all. So when he asks, are you an angel? He says, no. Spirit, no. Even human being, no. He says, Brahma, remember me as Buddha, awakened. So there were many more things happened in the course of the Buddha's awakening, many more things that we could recollect if you read the Buddha's biography. But these are just a few different things that we can uh, call to mind, reflect on, and hopefully it brings up a sense of appreciation, gratitude for the fact that he had this great wisdom, great compassion, and great purity. And hopefully we can build those qualities in ourselves when we do puja, practice devotion towards the Buddha, whether we're thinking of him in his personal historical form or just the qualities that define Buddhahood, we try and nurture them in ourselves, bring them up in ourselves, live them, so we can rightfully call ourselves Buddhists. We might not be Buddhas, but we can be Buddhists who are nurturing those qualities, growing them developing them and experiencing the happiness and the peace and the sense of security and calm that comes with that. And down from the Buddha, all the different practitioners what you might call our extended spiritual family through the ages, all those people that help preserve the teachings in their hearts, all those people that help preserve them in books, on tablets, on scrolls, practiced them, recorded them, cared for them. This huge, rich wealth lineage that we've inherited, this legacy it goes back to the Buddha, but we still have it now, still with us, still totally available to us. Hopefully we're going to make the most of that out of gratitude to the Buddha and to our own teachers, right down to the present age. Ajahn Man, Ajahn Cha, Ajahn Lumpur Samedo, Ajahn Dhammasiya for starting Dhammagiri, this monastery that we're all benefiting from. To bring up a sense of respect, affection, and gratitude, and appreciation. You can't force those things to come up, but reflecting on what we've inherited uh, should allow them to come up naturally. So hopefully this is a, a shared experience on Wisaka. We think back to the Buddha's birth, his awakening, and his final Parinibbana. So... I'm going to say that much for now.